Welcome to the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Professor John Hattie needs no introduction. He's one of those incredible individuals whose breadth of work and research is just astounding. Professor Hattie's work is internationally acclaimed. His influential 2008 book, Visible Learning, a synthesis of over 800 meta-analysis relating to achievement, is believed to be the world's largest evidence-based study into the factors which improve student learning. Involving more than 300,000 students from around the world and bringing together over 100,000 smaller studies. He has always been so generous with his time and it's a huge privilege to get to share our discussion with you today. Professor John Hattie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good to be here, Matthew. Where are you, uh, where are you calling from? Uh, we're calling from Anglesey in Victoria, which is about an hour and a half south of Melbourne. Fantastic. Uh, and a uh, nice place to be. Fantastic. And it's uh, obviously uh, you guys are out of um, lockdown now and Sydney is in lockdown, which is where I'm calling from. So uh, any advice on getting through uh, time uh, at home? Well, you've got two young kids. I don't think you're going to have any troubles. <laughs> I think we're so used to it now. In fact, yeah. I'm past it and bored by it. But I understand why we have to do it. Um, but just try and do something unique each day that you wouldn't have done if you had to stay at home for other reasons. Yeah, you ma- I mentioned before we hit record that uh, you've been doing a fair bit of writing. So has this been a, a great opportunity for you to really delve into some more research? Yeah, it's probably not very good for the trees out there, but um, yeah, it has been a great opportunity. And also, I'm absolutely fascinated with the research coming out on COVID because it's quite yeah. a mixed mixed bag coming out, which is interesting. It's not as doom and gloom as everybody claimed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, and we'll maybe get into that a little later, like it's really interesting to see uh, just how the educational lands, uh, landscape has uh, shifted um, in the, the last 18 months or so. It's a uh, Fascinating. But um, uh, the most important question, what is your coffee order for when I can finally buy you lunch and a coffee? Skinny, flat, white, very hot. Lovely. Um, and an item on your bucket list is going to Antarctica. Why is that the case? Um, never been. It's the only continent I've never been to. I tried to get there in my early 20s and they, all they wanted was carpenters and electricians, not <laughs> statisticians. Um, and it's kind of been a, a lifelong dream to finally touch down there and get that sense of that eeriness. Fantastic. I, was, I saw an ad, I think it was Qantas the other day, that are doing uh, day trips just flying over Antarctica. It, I, I'd prefer to go in there, you know, and, and, and feel the cold. Uh, but yes. um, you said that your favourite book is by Robert Caro. Um, uh, why is he uh, a significant author to you? Well, he's written four, we hope, five soon, uh, biographies of um, Lyndon Johnson. Okay. And his skill in telling stories... Like I've met many, many biographies and it's not true to say they go, he was born or she was born here and this is what happened. Caro just is, and I remember one chapter where he took the, um, almost the caretaker of the Senate's view of what was happening and just built a story about that. And it's just so spectacular that someone can weave such an incredible story. Uh, So stunningly good writer. And, um, you know, Lyndon Johnson was, a fascinating person. He did so many brilliant things. He did some pretty disastrous things too. And that's what he's remembered with Vietnam. But his racial civil rights was a, a, a massive gamble for him. Um, yeah. And as he said, if what's the use of power if you don't use it? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I, I mean, I, I look forward to reading more. I, Lyndon Johnson's actually come up in a number of conversations that I've had with people over the last couple of days. So uh, you've inspired me to... Uh, Read them in sequence, and um, sadly, they are rather large, each one of them, and there's four of them, and as I say, he's now in his 80s, and we've been waiting for the fifth one for about 15 years, so here's hoping it comes out. Fantastic. Um, If you could have a dinner party with anybody who would be there? Um, I'd like Carl Popper to be there, because he's very influential, and I actually did courses with him many, many years ago. My favourite singer, Cleo Lane, would bring a spice to life. Um, Michael Scriven is, I think, the, the best academic I've ever met and I consider him a very close friend. And whilst he's 96, he's still sharp as a tack. We're writing a book together. Um, 
my novelty person to bring a, uh, some uh, real interest to the um, to the party would be Samantha from Bewitched. And um, I want my family to be there because we have a lot of dinner parties and they're wild and um, fascinating and high-level energy. And so that would guarantee a really good party. And so that would be a really fun time. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a great, um, it sounds like a hoot at your place, uh, first and foremost, but, but what a uh, what an incredible dinner com- dinner um, uh, arrangement with those people. That sounds, uh, sounds amazing. Um, uh, John, your uh, work has uh, covered uh, so many areas of teaching and learning and statistics. And, and I, um, I remember one of the main reasons why I decided to do uh, further study through the University of Melbourne was after um, being enrolled in a graduate certificate in one of your courses, uh, the Graduate Certificate in Instructional Leadership. And to be honest, I wasn't in, uh, intending to do any further study, um, but after hearing, um, uh, getting to, to meet you and also to hear you unpack some of your research, it was an opportunity that I couldn't uh, refuse. And uh, one of your quotes, and I wondered if you wouldn't mind um, spending a few moments unpacking this, is you say that successful educators understand learning through the eyes of the student. Um, would you mind just spending a few moments uh, talking to that and why that's why that's so important? Yeah, Matthew, the, um, the predominant notion is that we need to hear teacher reflection. Mm. Um, we need to talk to teachers about how they teach, watch them teach, um, give them advice how to be better teachers. And it's kind of the wrong answer completely. Like firstly, as Graham Nuttall showed, 80% of what happens in your class you don't see or hear. So mm. why would you reflect on the 20%? Surely the other 80% yes. is critical. Furthermore, often teachers reflect like they look in a mirror. They interpret what they see themselves. And what that phrase means is that I want teachers to also see their impact through the eyes of their students. Um, I'm very happy if they see their impact, their interpretations are questioned, critiqued and improved with the eyes of their colleagues. But get away from this notion that it's about teaching. Okay? I, I almost really don't care how any teacher teaches. I think we've been so obsessed with that. I'm much more interested in the impact of that teaching. And students is one way. Like, I'm not talking about them doing popularity contests, but them coming up, teachers seeing when kids are struggling, and struggling to me is a good word, um, when they are not engaged, um, when they need to go to the next level. Because remember, teachers are the experts in the class, and many times the students are the novices. And sometimes we have to stand in the shoes of novices to understand what's going on. Yeah. And so it's that notion of how can we see the impact of what we do through that to which we want to have an impact on. Yeah. And that's been one of the big messages from Visible Learning. It's not saying I don't like teacher reflection. I want it reflection and I want the reflection critiqued. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you think that there are um, any sort of misunderstandings about your work? I mean, are there probably too many to mention, uh, but are there, um, are there things that you think that, I mean, I'm not a, uh, I mean, I have engaged in a lot of research through my career, but I wouldn't call myself a researcher, but are there some things that that, that teachers get wrong or mis- misunderstandings in what you're trying to say in terms of what actually matters most? Yeah, and, and, and to be fair, I have to take blame for that because of the my writing. Like, <laughs> um, like probably the biggest one is that, when Visible Learning came out, so many teachers and school leaders looked at the rankings and said, we're going to do the stuff at the top, not at the bottom. And that was never my message. Yeah. Some of the stuff at the bottom is at the bottom and we should be deeply worried about it. And it's also what took me 20 years to write that book was one of the big themes coming out under these various dimensions. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's been a misunderstanding. Um, you know, people have picked up sometimes their favorite topic and it didn't come out as good as they liked, but they class size and all that stuff, ability group, and they get really, really angry and upset and dismiss the whole thing. And what they don't do is is um, look at the argument I'm making is that in the past they have not, or they have been very effective, and let's understand why. And um, it's interesting, a couple of years ago, we, we sat down and, and did a search and found every criticism we could ever find of visible learning. And we made this, um, and it's a free website, uh, a gold paper, about a hundred odd different criticisms. And what was fascinating me is 70 to 80% of them were based on the league table. And nearly every one of them 
it was very obvious the critic had never opened the book. Gosh. They said things like, like one of them, a, a minor one. Oh, he uses males versus females. Now, which directions does it take? Males versus females or females versus males? Well, if you go to the book, it says, I converted them all into one direction. <laughs> but that's a whole article about yeah. that. And so the other thing that I was um, fascinated with, besides the fact they quibbled about the data and the ranking, is since I've published it, no one really has taken the articles, the data, and reinterpreted it. And that's what we do in academia. We criticize each other by reinterpreting what happens. And so last year, to save anyone the trouble, I, I released a free website, MetaRx, with all the data on it. Yeah. I'm saying, hey, save yourself 20 years. There's all the data. In fact, this morning, my 6 a.m. meeting was in the phases of updating that and very soon because more data is being added. And so I put the challenge out there. You know, I'm not pretending for a minute. My interpretations are correct. I'm saying they're the best I can come up with. If someone can come up with a better interpretation, I'll be the first to say, well done. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, do, uh, do you think you have to develop a bit of a, uh, bit of a hard skin uh, in academia to be, uh, to be able to handle criticism and, uh, and feedback, or is that the whole point? Look, I think academia is about critique. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, I welcome critique. The Fantastic. distinction that we all make all the time is critique the ideas, not the person. Yeah. You know, many people step that line. Like one of the things, Matt, that still surprises me is I still get, and it's ironic, I get unbelievably nasty. And they're always snail mail, not emails. I get these letters, uh, half of them are signed, half of them are not. And they are very, very personal. They're very, very vindictive. Um, they're inflammatory. And what bothers me about those is why did they waste their time writing them? But secondly, after they finish writing them, they're going to walk into a class of kids. I know, yeah. And if they can't take critique or have their views question and see it, that's a concern. So no, I, you do have a thick skin. On the other hand, my blessing is I have the world's best critics. Yeah. And I've learned a tremendous amount like that. Similarly, we did an, um, that gold paper we did, we looked at all those criticisms and you know, I've learned a lot from them. Yeah. Um, in terms of my writings, how I've ref refined the arguments, uh, some of them are just trivial some of them are off the planet some of them are wrong in my view but i welcome them because that's the essence and i took a decision um mainly on the the, the advice of uh, mary clay who was my predecessor in auckland and she said don't engage in wars with them this is the nature of academic critique so i've with one or two exceptions i've really responded to them to yeah. so that it doesn't become a battle between me and the person it becomes a discussion yeah a couple of years ago, one of my biggest critics, a philosopher, sociologist uh, from uh, Denmark, uh, Klaus um, uh, Lepper Larsen, uh, he was extremely critical of writing. And he had the courtesy, in my view, is every time he wrote something, he sent it to me. And so we started to have a bit of an email discussion. And he ended up uh, coming out here to Australia for, a, a, for about a month. And we actually ended up writing a book together. Yeah. He never changed his view. And I didn't change my substantive view, but we came to see how each other saw the world and it's made a very important difference to how I see the world. So yeah. no, I welcome the critique as long as yeah. it's of the ideas. Fantastic. Um, John, so where did it all start for you? Why did you decide to uh, commit your life to education? And also uh, maybe a, a question before that is, what were you like at school? Um, I was brought up in a small town in South Island of New Zealand in the 1950s and 60s, no television. Uh, we never had a car. Till the age of 15, I never really left the town. It was a very naive upbringing. And I'm blessed by that in retrospect. Um, and going to school, um, even in the town, it was a um, small, small town, but even in the local environment, that's where we spent all our time. It was, it was very intense in terms of that, um, relationships. And I had a wonderful time at school. I was so naive. I just enjoyed it. Um, I was okay at school. Uh, to, to say, if you look back, did I shine? No, I did okay. Um, I was very good at investing and learning because that's what it was about. And then as I was getting in my teenagers, I actually started my apprenticeship as a painter and paper hanger. Wow. And uh, no, that was scary. I, <laughs> it took me a year to realize that there weren't many skills to learn and I didn't even have those. <laughs> And my aim was to get out of that town. Yeah. And the only way I could get out of the town, because you know, my parents weren't affluent in any way, um, the concept of university was a foreign one in the small town, was they paid you to go to become a teacher. So I thought, I'll go and apply to be a teacher. And so that's how it's sort of, I fell into it. 
Um, and because I think I'm reasonably good at investing energies in, in work, I thoroughly enjoy the, the hunt and chase, which is why I love detective novels and crosswords, etc. Um, that held me in good stead. I was a teacher for a few years. Um, and at the same time, uh, when I went to the teacher's college, uh, every hour on the hour, you had to sign the role. And so at Christmas, I went home and I got this letter saying, you've been given a scholarship for a year to go to university. And I swear to this day, I never asked for it. And what happened is one day when I was signing the role, it wasn't the role. It was an application to go into it. And so, again, I fell into that. So I ended up with a university degree and a teacher's college degree. And it's kind of went from there. It was all accidental. Um, but wow, what a wonderful accident, set of accidents it was. Wow, that's that's fascinating. And it makes me um, think about a conversation I had a little while ago with um, Professor Yong Zhao, who is, a, um, as you know, a, a really um, incredible um, uh, a researcher. And, he and, was and, pointed to, and he's a member now of University of Melbourne. Fantastic. I did notice that, actually. And that was a, a, a wonderful to talk about our experiences at Melbourne. And he he was saying that the reason one of the reasons why he got into um, education was because he was a terrible farmer. Um, yeah. And he said that he had no, um, uh, just had no 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 ability to uh, to work the farm, and so then he decided to go into teaching. And, and I just find that fascinating because I think we can look at people's careers like yourselves, and also Professor Yong Zhao, and, and sort of see and, and think that there was some incredible plan behind it, as opposed to just going after something that you're really interested in and passionate about. And so it's really wonderful to uh, really wonderful to hear that and. Um, I'm so glad that you uh, got that scholarship and went into education. And I was going to do my degree in history. Yeah. Uh, but because I was a teacher's college, we were forced to do education. And we also, at the time, it was compulsory to get a degree, you had to have a foreign language. And that was not my forte at all. So I did French in the first year and didn't succeed. Then they changed the rules and said statistics was a foreign language. Yes. <laughs> So that's where the statistics side came from. Again, another great accident. Amazing, amazing. Uh, John, I've heard you mention that uh, your year 12 maths teacher, Mr. Tomlinson, had a significant impact on your life. Uh, what was it that uh, he did and why uh, Why do you remember him? He was a, a, an extremely strict disciplinarian that we had. And in those days, you didn't have a choice about doing maths in your final, your final year of schooling. Uh, it was compulsory. And I, I, prob I was okay at it. But I probably would have given it up for other subjects um, a year or so earlier, but you weren't allowed to. And I remember even in the first days, he came in and he said, yeah, my job is to get every single one of you um, excited about maths and finish the year with good grades in the, the bursary exams, et cetera, et cetera. And he, and he stuck to that. He, he treated us equally fairly. And I remember he was very, very strict. He made sure that every single one of us understood. He never assumed and never made any inference about you're a dummy, you're not a dummy. He had high expectations. The very first day, he put up uh, a couple of um, questions on the board for us to do, and we all failed them miserably. And he said, good, now I have a job because those are two items in the final exam. If you're able to do those, then what's the point of having me? And so he constantly did that through the year, put examples up of the, and in, in my language now, he showed us what success looked like. Yeah. He made us go up to the board, uh, which is a very rare thing to do, when we got something wrong and do it again and speak aloud so he, so he could hear. And he said to the other students, you know, help understand how John got that wrong. Now, you'd never do that today because of self-esteem. But we we're able to listen to the processes of maths, and yeah. that became the fun part. And so I look back, and um, in fact, I still keep contact with him uh, many, many years later, and I hope everyone that's listening to this also makes the effort to contact that teacher that had that major impact on you. Um, and uh, I just see that fairness he had, the way he made us think aloud, um, the way that he had high expectations. And you know, as he said, if I don't deliver on them, he said, I'm at fault, not you. Yeah. And so he took that responsibility extremely seriously. So thank you, Mr. Tomlinson. Fantastic. Is it? What was it like when you uh, reconnected uh, with Mr. Tomlinson after all these years? Well, to this day, even though he's invited me many times to call him by his first name, I can't. <laughs> I understand that, yeah. Yeah, we, we probably communicate every three or four years or so. Yeah. Um, it's, actually, it reminds me, it's about time I did it again. And it's um, and he, he also had a phenomenal memory. He knew every kid's name in the first day, every kid right across the school. And he still remembers every kid that I had in my class. Uh, so he had these wonderful sets of skills that way. Um, but it, it's, he, 
he's not a teacher anymore. Um, he does a lot of tutoring. He's much older than I am, so therefore he's well retired. Uh, but it's just very pleasant every now and then to make the contact with yeah. someone from that time that had that kind of impact on you. That's really and wonderful. I, I went on to do you know, statistics on my PhD, thanks to him. Yeah, and and how did, I'm, I'm just interested, John, how did he make you feel when you went into his classroom? Like, did you oh, feel look, like... We, we didn't, like, no one liked him because he was so rigid <laughs> and so yeah. disciplinarian. Yeah. Uh, he, he tolerated nothing. And we were 15, 16-year-old full of testosterone and big, bigger, thinking ourselves bigger than we were. And uh, he just didn't do that in his class. So the, there was that sense when you walked in, this is no fun, this is going to be a, a, a trial year. But from the first day onwards, it was like, wow. Yeah. This is exciting. Wow. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, John, for sharing that. It makes me think of uh, one of my teachers, Miss Jones, at Long Row Primary School uh, in Nottingham, which is in the Midlands in England. And uh, I just remember uh, feeling like the only kid in the room. I'm, I obviously wasn't. There was another 34, I think, of us. But I just remember walking into a classroom and going, wow, like I'm meant to be here. And she listens. And I think those connections with teachers are um are super super important and uh yeah isn't it interesting that there's always someone that uh there's always a teacher that has had an impact um on on each of our lives which is uh whether you've gone to gone into teaching or not there's always that one person that has had a significant impact so uh, well you may be surprised matthew that um a couple of years ago by chance we had a set of data that actually asked the question across about 600 adults what was the best teacher you ever had and why Wow. And we looked at the explanations and two reasons dominated. Wow. Either Ms. Jones turned you on to her passion, whatever the subject was, yeah. and or, like Mr. Tomlinson, they saw something in you you didn't see in yourself. Yeah. Not one of them mentioned a content area. Not one of yeah. them mentioned the method of teaching. It was all about that high expectation and that passion. And you know, one of my little jokes in visible learning is that passion is a pretty common denominator of great teachers. Yep. And my joke was, and it's hard to measure. It's not. It is in your face obvious. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I don't remember how, it, it's interesting you raised the, uh, the content point as well, because I don't remember how I learned how to identify 2D shapes or how I learned how to read or so on and so forth. I just remember, um, I remember how I felt in that classroom and I remember the, the connection I had with my teacher. And I think um, yeah, that's really important. And um uh, John, I just wanted to uh, just ask a couple of questions about collective teacher efficacy. It's a bit of a mouthful uh, for uh, just after nine o'clock. Um, so, what is teacher collective? Sorry, collective teacher efficacy, and what us? Why is sorry? Why is this so important? Why is this form such an important part of your research? Well, five or ten years ago, a PhD student in Chicago, Rachel Owls, did a thesis on this a meta analysis, and I added it to the database, and it's got of any individual influence, it's probably the highest effect. Wow. Um, firstly, that's my fault because I said somewhere that this was the new number one <laughs> and people got excited about it. And I missed the point. It's underlying many of the issues in the top part. So whether it's number one or 10 doesn't really matter. It's a pretty important one. But secondly, it's kind of like, it's, it's going the way of professional learning communities. Like that started off with the DeFores as a great idea. It was very specific. And now it's becoming that any time you have a staff meeting, it's a professional learning community. Yeah. Teacher collective is like that. So what I like to say is that when you mention it, you've got to add two words, collective teacher efficacy about impact. Yeah. And going back to what we were saying before about reflection, it's when teachers work together to hear each other's interpretations. It's teachers who have high expectations for all the students. Um, it's, it's about help having others help you interpret what's happening uh, and help you critique where you go next. And that's the essence of it. Now, it's hard to do because you've got to have a staff room that has incredibly high trust so that you can bring along a problem of practice, bring along a difficult student, a difficult concept you're teaching. And I don't know about you, Matthew, but often in staff rooms, that's the last thing you want to do because it's an admission of failure. <laughs> um, do a walkthrough of um, most professional learning and you hear uh, school leaders talking 89% of the time, like in many classrooms. And so that, that's a problem. But the other thing is you've got to have that skill that the group can come up with a better answer than you can. And you know, I've been a dean in a university for 
20 odd years in three different universities. And I often know that I don't have that skill. Often I sit in meetings thinking, oh my goodness, I could do this so much faster myself. I'm the problem. So that notion is, is really, really um, critical. In fact, as part of what we did about three or four years ago, I said to my team, if teacher collective efficacy is so powerful, mm -hmm. then what would happen if we phrased it in terms of student collective efficacy? And so recently our book just came out and in that we make the very, very strong claims about the skills needed for students to work together and they're the same with adults. So it's a very powerful notion uh, starting to be used a lot around the, the world. I fear it's going to be misunderstood. It's just teachers talking to each other. It's much more than that. It's about their impact, what they mean by impact. What do you mean by at least a year's growth for a year's input? Are you prepared to bring along a piece of students' work three months apart and have a discussion about whether that's actually three months learning? This, these are the kind of the core things that happen under this phrase. Yeah. So very important, but like many good ideas, it soon gets watered down to be what we did previously, just talking to each other. It's interesting as well that that um, obviously there needs to be the right context and the right culture within a school to be able to have those conversations. Um, and the right leaders. Yeah, absolutely. And how would you address the, the maybe the more traditional notion of teaching of uh, leave me alone and let me do my job, that whole idea of just closing doors and how, what, what would you say to that? I can see your sort of <laughs> Look, wondering how to be relaxed. Yeah. Yeah, it frustrates the hang out of me, um, Matt, because, you know, yeah, teaching is often a very private profession. But one of the things that, um, you know, we, we have to face up to, we do have variance amongst our teachers. And like, the biggest source of variance in Australia is within a school, not yeah. between schools, which is where all our conversation goes. It's within a school. And unless we're prepared to start and own up to that is the issue, we are solving the wrong problems. And so often in education, we bring in new programs, we bring in new interventions, we bring in new curriculum, and we avoid the most critical problem, the variability. Now, what I think I've shown and what I can show, not just through visible learning, but through the analysis of PISA, NAPLAN, state data, et cetera, is we're very lucky in the world in that we have you know, at least 60% plus of teachers who whose students are gaining yeah. more than a year's growth, three years ago. But... We have some that's not. And those teachers more often say things, leave me alone and let me teach. I don't have the time. Um, you don't understand the curriculum. You don't realize how much assessment is strong in the school. You don't understand how bad my school leaders are. And I want to look them in the eye and say, how come down the corridor, there's another teacher who's in the blue zone, in the, the high zone with the same kids, same curriculum, same school leader, same assessment. It is about how they think, it's about them. And unless we're prepared to face that. Now, the visible learning story is identifying, reliably identifying those that have the high impact, forming a coalition around those and inviting the others to come in. The last thing you, know, you need to do is name and shame them. We have to come up with ways of helping each body see. Now here's the beauty, even teachers who have a, typically are incredibly good, they have bad days, they have bad lessons, they have good lessons. And more often than not, they're willing to talk about that. And so them starting the discussion about how they had not so good impact as they want, how they could have improved. I want that to be like the virus, the current COVID virus, the Delta strain. I want that to spread throughout the school. So that's normal in the school that we do this. So then those that aren't in that high zone will realize that it is about how they think. But the last thing you should say is leave me alone. Me now that applies to those really great teachers too. Many of them come to the staff room, sit down, don't engage because they want to go back to their own classes, indulge in their passion. I want them also to yeah. think about it. And so, no, I'm not prepared to say, leave me alone, let me think, teach. Not good enough. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thank you so much for addressing and challenging that. I feel uh, um, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, uh, you mentioned briefly before um, a recent work, uh, The Purpose of Education. So it's a 2020 uh, publication, uh, 2020 book, sorry. So, um, what do you think the purposes of education are? And also, has that uh, changed in any way as a result of the current um, COVID-19 pandemic? Look. That's a very big question. Sorry, John, we don't have all day. Question. I know, that's, that's a huge question. And look, the, the first thing I want to note here is that kids, students will create their own futures. We won't. 
They're going to create their future. Absolutely. And they're probably going to create their, our futures more than we're going to create our futures. And so that's the starting premise. They are students, they're five-year-olds, they're 15-year-olds, they're not adults. Um, and they live in that here and now. And so if they're going to create the futures, our influence on them is to model what we think are the elements of a good future. Respect for self, respect for others. Um, that balance of surface and deep knowledge. And I make no excuse for including achievement in the purpose of schools, maximizing the achievement, because if you didn't have that, I don't know what we'd do in schools. Um, I do worry about our constant debates about curriculum where we're tinkering towards a utopia that doesn't exist. Um, you go to some countries in the world and the entire curriculum for every age, for every subject is no more than 40 pages. And ours, if you printed it out, is two and a half thousand pages and we tinker with it. I think um, I, I'm not particularly worried about many of the topics that teachers choose to teach kids as long as they get that balance of yeah. surface and deep, as long as they teach them the strategies of learning. And given that we do have a moral obligation here, then I would say that in some schools, I'd like to give them a lot more freedom to decide on what those topics are, um, fewer of them. So they have that luxury to be able to go deep as well as build up the content. And so I think in terms of the purposes of schooling, it's um, to make every school in Australia an inviting school that kids want to come back to. Like the hardest thing in my political role, Matt, is um, when I look at the economics of education, the biggest predictor of adult health, wealth, and happiness is not achievement at school. It's the number of years of schooling. Wow. So when I ask many people, particularly politicians, director generals, you know, what's the retention rate from those who start high school to end high school in your state? Do you know what it is in Australia or what it is in New South Wales? It's around 80%, one in five don't right. make it. And those one in five are going to be the biggest costs to society, to them, um, and our schooling, particularly our upper schooling in Australia, is not inviting. Um, no one's got the courage to deal with it. We tinker with the curriculum instead of tinkering with the big problems. And I think that the way of increasing those one in five that don't come back, don't fix the chemistry curriculum, the history or the maths curriculum. You've got to come up with other ways of doing it, but we're not prepared to do that. And yeah. I think that's a big problem. So I think the purposes are to, to help kids create their futures. And I don't think any kid wants their future where one in five of their peers is not going to succeed as an adult. No, not at all. Um, well said. Uh, do you think, uh, John, that the, um, that the role of the teacher has changed in recent times in terms of uh, sort of specifically in, in the last, say, decade and then more recently in the last 18 months or so with the result of the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, in the last decade, um, well, the biggest change I've seen in teachers is that 10 plus years ago, you'd never hear a teacher or a school leader talk about academic research. It just didn't happen. Yeah. Very exceptions. Now it's kind of normal that they'll look at it. Now, sad for my colleagues, they don't always agree with it. Uh, they do critique it um, and they, they do make their own judgments, but at least they now include that. That's a massive change. But the other part more generally, though, is that um, every time there's a societal ill, we add it to the teacher's work basket. Um, and so teachers now are expected to be a lot more that like when I was a teacher, we had a job at the end of the school day, the kids went home. There wasn't a thing called internet and bullying that crossed the boundaries. Um, and we were very focused, uh, probably much too much on curriculum and getting through things. That hasn't changed all that much. I think COVID gave us an incredible eye opener. It's probably the biggest educational revolution in my lifetime because I struggled to find anywhere in the world any policy that came from up high down to a school that told them how to better teach in COVID, other than whether a school should open or close. Wow. And teachers did dramatic things overnight to find ways to best advantage their students. And I just think that it's a real big lesson there, Matt, about how we can see that incredible power of teachers to influence policy on the ground in terms of how it goes up. Um, I've also done a, a lot of work on calamities and other, prior to COVID actually, in Christchurch earthquake, uh, Hurricane Katrina, uh, world wars. Um, I think the most misused word about 2020 was it was unprecedented. That proves clearly that person doesn't understand any history. Like the, the 1953 Asian flu killed a hell of a lot more 
than COVID ever did and had much more disruption, but most of us don't even remember it. I don't. I was only three. Uh, but, but the effects of it we know about. But the, the, what we do know, which worries the heck out of me, is that we rush back to the old normal very fast. And uh, I'm already hearing some states saying, COVID's over. Good things happened in COVID. Um, the average effect size, the average effect size in COVID is about minus 0.1 which I think any school within a couple of months could pick up reasonably quickly. Yeah. And I think that that attests to the incredible expertise of teachers to minimise the nasty effects. And so anytime someone mentions the learning loss from COVID, they're actually insulting teachers, and I think that's very unfair. Mm. Um, even in this new world where social and emotional now, COVID has proved that it's part of schooling. But again, we've got to watch very carefully that we don't go overboard on that and now expect teachers to be counselled. Like if you... I, I, we're just doing a, a piece at the moment with about 20,000 students about how they felt during COVID and one word, dominated, bored. Now that's something teachers are responsible for and can fix. Yeah. And so that's not often as what's seen as social and emotional. Now yeah. here's the bad news. The 10 or 15% of kids who went backwards in COVID went backwards markedly. Yeah. And yeah. now of course we care about those, but caring about all kids, we've got to get that balance right. So. I made a, a comment I got into trouble with in a previous session where I said, do we really expect teachers to be counsellors? You know, what aspects of social and emotional should teachers respond to? And the reaction was, how dare you? Um, they, should, they should have responsibility. So I contacted about 15 of my colleagues who are the world gurus in social emotional learning and asked them the question. And every one of them came back with the same answer. Teachers should take full responsibility. I think that's unfair. And I think we need a very healthy debate about which aspects. Now, my answer is social and emotional relating to the learning. Boredom is one of those emotions. It's more dominant than, say, some of the depression and the other kind of things, which obviously have incredible negative effects. Yeah. But we've got to get that balance right. I don't know the complete answer yet, but I just worry that um, teachers will be asked to take on more and we won't take the chance to say, hey, let's reassess the role of teachers. The other one that... Um, amuses me is that all this evidence argument um, now evidence surely shouldn't be the major dominant argument it's the interpretation of evidence yeah but you think Matthew if you sat as a teacher now and say what do I need evidence about well you've got visible learning evidence you've got learning evidence from all over the place but the one source you don't have is every night you go home and you make decisions about what your lesson plan is going to be the next day where's the evidence about lesson planning and I think this is a really big gap that we need to fill. And so I've been trying to work and there's some cool ideas out there in the world to do this. But how do we stop? Um, like at the moment, we know that the biggest source for lesson plans is Pinterest. Um, we know that teachers like to mold the lesson plan to their class, to them. And nothing wrong with that. But I think we start need to start doing it on an even base. I noticed some of the systems like Oak Academy, Ed Reports, through COVID, they started to build up banks that looked at how the lesson was aligned to the curricula, how rigorous it was, and looking at its impact. I think that's an exciting thing that we should be advancing. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's, such a, it's such a fascinating um, such a fascinating topic, John. And it's really interesting to, uh, that you mentioned that the effect size, I think you said that it was negative one uh, for learning during COVID-19. And I think... Point one. Point one, sorry. And, and if... Um, Gosh, if you read the newspaper articles and if you watch the commentary, like that's not the message that I seem to be hearing. So how important do you think it is, John, um, a, a much more broadly in terms of what we do as teachers to, to really challenge those assumptions and really take the time to look at our evidence and not just sort of follow, um, I guess, trends or, or what seems popular? Yeah. Well, firstly, one of my frustrations is in the policy space is that we love to look for failures and fix them. Mm. Whereas my mantra is I look for success and yeah. scale it up. Yeah. And when I ask how many articles have ever been written in education on scaling up success, I'm up to article eight wow. in the history of business. Now, if you go to any other discipline that dominated by looking at upscaling success and in our discipline, unfortunately, there's more funding follows failure than follows success. But there's a massive imperative to say, oh, we've got a problem here. We need more resources. And I understand that. It's kind of like the um, 10 years ago, 4% of our kids were labelled in schools for special needs. Now it's over 20%. Yeah. 
And I know why that's increased because that's how you get the attention. And it's very sad because labeling is one of those marked negative effects in the visible learning database. And so I understand why we, we do look for failure. And I think that's very, very unfortunate. The other part of that though, Matthew, is um, one of the hardest things we do in our workshops is we spend a, a lot of times on how teachers and school leaders think. And the hardest one is I am a change agent. And we have lots of scenarios we put up to teachers and there's only one answer. Like we give them the example of a student who typically doesn't do very well, uh, doesn't like class. And on this particular day, he did extremely well. And we asked the teachers, yeah, what do you think are the possible reasons why that kid did well? And having done this now probably a hundred plus times, the kid was interested. Uh, the kid was turned on, um, the topic, et cetera, et cetera. And they go on and on and on. And none of those are the right answer. The only answer is the teacher. Yeah. Teachers are the best at the world at denying their expertise. They're so generous. It's the kid that did the work. It's the parents that support it, et cetera. And that's killing us in the area of um, public domain because people think that anybody can be a teacher. There's no expertise in being a teacher. And I noticed in England at the moment, there are now more amateurs, adults in schools than there are teachers, teaching aides and teaching assistants that have a neg zero to negative impact on kids. And there are more of them and New Zealand's the same and very soon we'll get the data from Australia. And you know, These are wonderful people, they're kind, they're nice. They just don't have an impact on the kids at all in terms of their learning. And that's the whole story we should look at and, and prove that because we're not gonna get rid of them. Mm. But I do worry that um, that whole expertise is out the window. Now take COVID. We had what 140 days of um, lockdown here in Melbourne. Kids were at home. Parents realised that their teachers have lied to them. Their kids weren't angels, so we're tough in the area. And they realised what incredible expertise you have. And on that Monday morning when schools went back. I put my head out the window here and I could hear the collective sigh of every parent in Melbourne saying, oh my gosh, I had two kids for 140 days. Matt, you had 20 to 30 kids every day for 200 days a year. How do you do it? We realize the incredible expertise in teachers. And even now, six, three or four months after the big lockdown, we're going back to the same old arguments. Um, we, we, teachers are the problem, schools are the problem. Uh, we have to tinker with the curriculum, with the assessments and all the peripheral things. Why don't we stop and say, this is the year to esteem teachers. Yeah. This is the year to look at that expertise. Yeah. But as a profession, no, we don't do that. Yeah. I, I, I mean, one of the, um, one of my frustrations is during the pandemic, we were sort of perceived as these heroes, um, but then very quickly um, the tables have turned. And so, um, I mean, I uh, just personally, I find that really difficult because uh, and you mentioned before as well, we don't acknowledge um, what we do really well as educators. I mean, there is nothing that I would want to be doing other than standing in front of a class and teaching kids. But um, I, I find that really difficult to hear these mixed messages of that we are um, we are valued members of society. We have an integral part in raising the next generation. But then five minutes later, a, a news report comes out to say that we're to blame because our kids can't read, um, which is... Particularly challenging. Um, I mean, how would you uh, how would you respond to that? I mean, what advice would you give to, to teachers that are trying to? Um, what am I trying to say? How would you sort of help teachers feel like they are making a difference in their class? Um, what would you say? Because it's so difficult. Sorry, that was a terribly worded question, John. Yeah, I know where you're going to. Like, I, I do want to say that every teacher that you really do need to value your expertise and talk about it and confront things like learning loss and all kids can't read. Yes, yeah, some kids can't read and we know which those kids are and we've got plans in place, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you know, 90 to 95% are able to read, not maybe always to the level we want. So we've got a lot of success out there. Yeah. But the other part of it, you know, going to my um, chair of the Agile role, when I had the chance of speaking to politicians and director generals, is uh, last weekend I went to Brisbane to the Holtz Conference, the highly accomplished and lead teachers conference. You've never seen a more energetic, exciting, intellectual group of people that are wanting to get in and solve the problem. We have 0.3 of 1%. It should be 10%. And, you know, governments wax and wane on them and they invent new labels for them. And some of the professions think that it shouldn't happen because it's, it's elitism. 
Um, and so there's massive battles out there, but I am a great fan that the Holts across Australia are our best manifestation. And when you hear them, as I did have the luxury in uh, Brisbane last week, when you hear their thinking, it's a magnitude. It's a magnitude above what you hear in many different circles. And so I'm trying to say to ministers, have one of them in your, your office. Um, let's find ways of privileging them. Let's introduce highly accomplished and lead teachers. Let's have highly accomplished and lead specialist schools. Let's change our, uh, our, our career structure. So it's not based on age, but it's based on experience and expertise. And we released a paper last week um, from Aitzel looking at some of those ideas about how we can make expertise underlying our policies moving forward in Australia. It's going to be a tough battle, but that's the battle I want to take. If I have any influence in Australia, I want to reintroduce that notion of expertise and not be afraid of it. Yeah. And otherwise, we, we are going to get more amateurs. We're going to get less funding. We're going to be treated as non-high impact people. Like even to get teachers vaccinated for COVID should have been one of the first steps. No one seems to care. Yeah. And that's just not good enough because yes. they are creating the future of Australia. Yeah. Today. Yeah, absolutely, John. Well said. Um, one of my goals this year is to get started with my HALT accreditation. Um, it's um, a huge process, but I think it's, it's really important. And, and I... Um, I feel like I'm constantly learning and constantly asking those questions and uh, challenging those assumptions. And a lot of that is um, uh, due to the incredible work um, that, that you have done in terms of putting, asking teachers to put a lens to their own practice and asking those questions about what are the things that, um, that make a difference, not the things that are trendy or not the things that you, um, not, the, not the current uh, fads, but what are the things that make a difference? And um, thank you so much, John, for, um, uh, for your really meaningful research into that area. I, uh, I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, John, I'm, I'm conscious of time and I want to be respectful of your time, uh, but just a couple of uh, questions. I mean, there's so much of your work that we could we could talk about, um, uh, but I would encourage people to definitely buy your books and, and, to, and to check that out. But what are, you, um, what are you most proud of so far in your career? Um, and also what would you like to be remembered for? The, the, the luxury and what I'm most proud of in my career is the 200 plus thesis students that have successfully graduated. I just think it's quite remarkable that we ask people like you, Matt, to come and do um, research work and thesis work and you pay for it, you invest your time, you get down and deep about something, I learn from that, you teach me, and I get paid for it. I just think that's a that's phenomenal a good job. Yeah. yeah, I get paid to do that job. And so th those students have probably taught me more than any other thing I've ever had about the successes, the wrong avenues, the right ways, etc. And I've learned so much from them and I'm very, very proud of that 200 plus, 207 of those thesis students. So that, if anything else, is a legacy that uh, I'm quite happy with. Fantastic. Um, in terms of, I don't want to be remembered, That's um, except <laughs> by my kids and <laughs> family. I want the ideas to be remembered. Yeah. I want the ideas to be contested. I want um, that, so that's, and I've taken a lot of effort over the years, particularly with our, our work in schools to say, no, it's about visible learning. It's not about John Hattie. Um, and that way others can improve it. Others um, can question it. And we've learned a lot from working in schools around the world. How do we improve the message? How do we improve the impact? Um, I have a very tight um, clause on the contract that if my people don't have an impact on kids, I fire them. And I've done that to two very large companies over the years um, for various reasons. Um, it is about having an impact on kids, but it's about the ideas. And so, no, I don't mind if, um, if I fade off into the distance, but I hope I've made a contribution to the ideas and that um, they are continually contested. Fantastic. Uh, John, you seem, um, and, and you seem like someone who is endlessly curious. I remember um, a number of years ago uh, sitting down and having a, uh, a brief lunch with you when you were up in Sydney uh, when I was doing the graduate certificate. And the thing that really struck me about you is that you were um, so interested in um in the conversation like uh, you're so interested in what i had to say which i'm incredibly grateful for i mean how do you keep how do you keep that um that excitement and that interest and that engagement in your work because uh, respectfully you've been doing it for a while but you seem as passionate now as you were um when we had lunch a number of years ago 
I go, if I knew all the answers, then I'd, man, I'd be telling them all. But I don't know all the answers. And, yeah. like, and 90% of the time, it's working out the right problem. Yeah. And now I have my views about what the right problem is. And if I answer those, I could be answering something that no one cared about. That's why I'm really interested to hear what your sense of the problem is, how you see the world. I want to stand in your shoes and understand what it looks like from that, because that's what human beings are. And so and I think this is the essence of learning is that uh, ability, that's ability to, to understand how you're thinking, how you're making those decisions. Now, I'm probably not as good as I should be in being nice and saying to you, Matt, I think there's a different way of looking at that or you're wrong. Um, maybe I need to learn better skills of that because I'm sometimes quick to the judgment, but I'm also prepared to have people do that to me. Yeah. And that is a, a blessing when people, when, I, when someone actually demonstrates that they've not only listened to you, they've understood what you've said. That is so rare in our world. Yeah. More often than not, we wait for someone to shut up so we can start talking. And so that has been what I've enjoyed about right from as a kid, that ability to see the world in different views, um, that curiosity, which I'm still curious. I'm now in the lovely phase of life where I'm a, a granddad. Oh my gosh, I'm discovering exciting things, um, working and playing with my two, three, four and five-year-olds. It's, it's a great world. Well, you must know this with your kids. You see a different world completely. Absolutely. That's the beauty of being a teacher. Absolutely. Well, um, John, what a uh, what a wonderful place to uh, to wrap up this conversation. I mean, that there's uh, just so many uh, things we could talk about, but I, I thank you so much for your um, unwavering passion to uh, support teachers and also to your incredible contribution to uh, to my profession. And um, it's always a pleasure to uh, to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Matt. You can see I love talking about this, so I love it when people like you are willing to talk with about it as well. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.